0: Good morning and a good Resurrection Sunday it is. I uh, I had to exercise a small measure of faith this morning because the church has a new color laser printer and uh, I actually was told how I could print from my home. But it's an interesting feeling pushing print at your home and believing that there would be something here when I arrived. And as the scripture says, God gives us more than we're able to ask or think. I didn't ask for color, but you got it. (laughs) I'll fix that next week, I hope. But there are some notes coming your way probably there is no place where faith is more evident or the lack of it than when one is standing beside a grave this uh, this particular day is is uh, a special day for all of us because it is uh, designated as easter sunday it's it's a significant day for Jeanette and myself in a different way because 43 years ago we woke up to find that our son was dead. And, and so this this day has a different significance. And yet it was a time when we experienced the presence of God and the reality of our faith. And, and it's nothing compared to what the disciples experienced as they heard and saw the uh, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about it, they took, as it were, they emptied their their bank account of all of their reserves and invested in Jesus. <laughs> and, and and think about the sense of absolute loss and and misdirection and and just confusion when it looks like all of that has just gone away. I don't suppose there's any text that's more graphic about that than Luke chapter 24 and the men on the road to Emmaus where, where basically they say we followed him and, and, and now it's, it, it, it's, it's over. What's interesting is they had actually heard the report from the women that Jesus had risen and, and, uh, and the apostles were those who wouldn't believe it even when they were reminded Jesus had said he would rise, when the women said they had spoken to the angels and they had looked in the empty tomb, they still refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. It was a grim day for them. But what an amazing transformation we see when the reality of the resurrection works itself out in the birth of the church and in the boldness of the apostles as they proclaimed the gospel. What I'd like to do today is is to talk about the meaning of the resurrection. I agonized as as to whether or not I should make this a part of the church series and I kind of went back and forth and 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 basically decided late minute no it's just going to be a standalone and we're just going to talk about the resurrection and I'm even though it's related to the church. I'm going to talk about it in two ways. One is what the resurrection means for our Lord Jesus Christ, what it means in relationship to him. And the second is what the resurrection means in relationship to all men. What does the resurrection mean for men? So I'd like to start with the resurrection and its meaning for our Lord Jesus. And in this instance, I'd like to sort of work my way through the Gospel of Matthew and see how Matthew plays out the resurrection theme. I believe you could do that in, in any one of the Gospels, but I want to track with Matthew. And I want to start with that first text in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, which is the birth account of our Lord Jesus... And you remember, this is where the Magi have come, where Herod has discerned from them when they first saw the star, which is his way of discerning when the birth of our Lord Jesus took place. And then he sends out his soldiers to uh, to murder all of the babies of Bethlehem and their surrounding vicinity uh, that are two years old and younger. And this text has always fascinated me, but I had not until recently seen it as related to the resurrection. Look at what it says. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became enraged. He sent men to kill all the children in Bethlehem and throughout the surrounding region from the age of two and under, according to the time he had learned from the wise men. Here's the text. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud wailing, Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they were gone. Now the way I've always read that, and I guess the way most people probably read it, is that the prophecy is fulfilled in the sense that these women in the vicinity of Bethlehem can identify. There is a parallel between the experience of of Rachel and and her uh, her fellow sisters, as as the the, uh, the northern uh, kingdom is carried off into captivity, and and perhaps a, a number of their of their babies or are, are killed. And they are weeping that loss, or they see the, the the children being carried away, and they're sent another direction, and they and they sense that that is the end; they will never see their babies again. And and so some simply see this as a fulfillment in the sense of it's sort of like one is sort of like the other. But look at the uh, at where that text is found; it is found uh, in the midst of Jeremiah chapter thirty-one. Now, that ought to ring a bell immediately in your mind. Jeremiah 31 is the New Covenant chapter of of Jeremiah. And look at the tone. And what I'm trying to say is this one verse that has been drawn out of Jeremiah chapter 31 is drawn out of a context of joy and celebration, not out of a context of weeping. Uh, The major thrust is that of joy. Verse 10 of Jeremiah 31, hear what the Lord has to say, O nations, proclaim it in the faraway lands along the sea. Say, the one who scattered Israel will regather them. He will watch over his people like a shepherd watches over his flock. For the Lord will rescue the descendants of Jacob. He will secure their release from those who had overpowered them. They will come and shout for joy on Mount Zion. They will be radiant with joy over the good things the Lord provides, the grain, the fresh wine, the olive oil, the young sheep and calves that he has given them. They will be like a well-watered garden and He will will not grow faint or weary anymore. The Lord says at that time, I, I take it that means at the time in which this is going to be fulfilled, At that time, young women will dance and be glad. Young men will and old men will rejoice. I will turn their grief into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy in place of their sorrow. I will provide priests with abundant provisions. My people will be filled to the full with good things. I will provide. The Lord says, a sound is heard in Ramah, a sound of crying and bitter grief. It is the sound of Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are gone. Here's what the Lord says to her. Stop crying. Do not shed any more tears, for your heartfelt repentance will be rewarded. Your children will return from the land of the enemy. I, the Lord, affirm it. Indeed, there is hope for your posterity. Your children will return to their own territory. I, the Lord, affirm it. Now, here's the way I read this. The fulfillment, therefore, is not just the fulfillment of women sorrowing over the loss of their children and therefore being like what happened to the women of Israel. The fulfillment is that God has promised them they will be restored to their children. Does it not? And rather than weeping and mourning, they are to rejoice over what God is going to do. And the question is, how does that come to pass? It comes to pass through the death of Jesus Christ. So here's the irony of that text. The life of our Lord Jesus, and I'm saying this now in terms of his incarnation, the life of our Lord Jesus as he comes upon this earth brings death. To these infants. But the death of our Lord Jesus brings life. And so the final conclusion of the story is that those women who lost those children have the assurance of those children being restored. So I see this as the first instance of resurrection in, in, in a reference to the resurrection. Of our Lord and its implications uh, in the gospel of Matthew. You may or may not go with that, but it seems to me the context of Jeremiah 31 forces us to go beyond suffering and it goes to joy. And the only way that joy can take place is because Jesus has come and he has died so that men may live. Now, look at how that plays out. The resurrection plays out in the gospel of Matthew. Chapter 9 and verses 18 through 26, is that account. In Matthew, it is called the ruler who comes to Jesus. In uh, Luke chapter 8, Mark chapter 5, we know this ruler by the name Jairus. It's Jairus who comes, and in, in the other accounts, he comes and his daughter is at the point of death, and then people come and say to him, don't bother, it's too late, she's dead. In our account, it simply bears it down to the fact that the ruler comes and says, my daughter is dead. Nevertheless, if you come and lay your hands on her, she will be, she will live. And you remember that's the interrupted miracle where the woman of the hemorrhage touches the garment of Jesus. And all of that, of course, creates the delay, which adds to the suspense and the difficulty of the resurrection that our Lord is going to accomplish or the raising that he will accomplish there. So Matthew begins by this reference to the implications of our Lord Jesus coming as far as resurrection. He then goes and gives us an account of our Lord Jesus raising someone from the dead. And look with me then at Matthew chapter 10... And verses, let's look at particular, in particular at verses seven and eight as he sends out the twelve. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. What's interesting is that I don't work on the tenses that much, but it's a present tense and I take it that it's not just saying do it once see how it feels, but the impression is this is what they did as they went from place to place. We have no recorded instance that I am aware of of the disciples ever raising the dead. But this text says Jesus commanded them to do it, and I believe in the next text he's going to refer to it being done. My point is this. As spectacular as raising the dead was, the New Testament writers don't glamorize it and they don't blow it up and and, and give you every instance. So I gather that there were many resurrections that took place And we just get a sprinkling of them because they're just the the tip of the iceberg, but they're samples of what indeed took place. Now look at Matthew chapter 11, and uh, in particular, uh, the the, uh, verses 2 through 6, and they're talking now about John the Baptist. He is in prison, and I take it, therefore, that his disciples are watching Jesus very closely, maybe following from afar, so to speak, Those who did not immediately choose to follow Jesus, they're certainly not, probably just sitting around waiting. And and John the Baptist sends them with the question, are you indeed the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Because what was taking place didn't appear to be what John the Baptist expected of Messiah. And Jesus' answer is this in verse 4. Go tell John what you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. My inclination is to say the dead are being raised. I take it that this is something that is ongoing uh, in our Lord's ministry and in the ministry of his disciples. So there's a whole lot of raising going on. (laughs) If I'm reading correctly, the disciples and our Lord Jesus performing that. And, of course, that sets the stage for chapter 12. In chapter 12, you have the religious leaders now saying to Jesus, after all that he's done, if you indeed are the Messiah, give us a sign that proves that. Clinch it once and for all. Make it certain you are who you claim to be. And Jesus says to them, uh, verse 39 of Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the, the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Now, one of the things that I find interesting and I was just looking at at the text in Matthew chapter 27 again. It's interesting to me how absolutely slow of heart the disciples were when it came to our Lord's statements about rising from the dead. And we'll see in a moment that he makes multiple statements just in the gospel of Matthew. But his enemies seem to have picked up on this very early on. And so in verse 40 of Matthew 27, they're saying to him, save yourself if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. If you're the one who says you can build the temple in three days after it's been destroyed, then save yourself. Uh, when you come to late Matthew 27, a text we're going to look at in a minute, where they say, this deceiver said he would rise in three days. It's amazing to me that most of the, of the words of our Lord concerning his resurrection are private words to his disciples, not public words that are given. And yet, in spite of all that, the disciples refuse to believe it even when it is told to them, and yet the enemies believe it i 'm going to make a little side point on this. sometimes liberals do a better job of of observing scripture, not interpreting i don 't want to go there. sometimes liberals do a better job of observing scripture because they don 't have to believe what it says they just they just it, there it is there, you know and so they don 't believe Jesus when he says. I think, that he's going to rise from the dead. But but they take it seriously. They remember what Jesus' disciples do not. They observe what Jesus' disciples do not. And yet it appears the overwhelming evidence that has been given by our Lord has been given privately to His disciples. Now, when you come then to, to texts like Matthew chapter 16 verse 21, remember that's the great confession. That's the point at which Jesus now says to His disciples, now that Peter has made the profession on behalf of the others, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. Then Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected and, and so on and crucified in three days. I'm going to rise again. So you've got that five times in the Gospel of Matthew. And, of course, in the other Gospels you have it too. But five times before Jesus dies, he says to his disciples, I am going to die and rise again on the third day. Seems to me that repetition makes a pretty significant point. So Jesus has hung everything from Matthew chapter 12. He has hung his credentials, his credibility, the validity of his message... Everything that Jesus was about hangs upon whether or not Jesus will rise from the dead. That is the final and the ultimate sign, which explains why the disciples felt such great loss when it appeared he was dead and gone. No wonder they felt such great loss because now all is gone, they they suppose. So Jesus now makes it clear to his disciples what the future is going to hold and that he will rise. Just two things from that text in Matthew chapter uh, 27. And, and uh, first is uh, from verses 50 through 53. This, this is the most amazing thing. If there is one time I would have loved to have been a fly on some rock in Jerusalem, it would have been to see what takes place here. Matthew 27, verse 50. Then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And just then the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split apart. The tombs were open and the bodies of many saints who had died were raised. They came out of the tombs after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, you've got to remember that during this festive time, there were just hordes of people that flocked to Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. Passover. So you had all kinds of strangers. But can you imagine being there at the coffee shop or whatever it was at the Starbucks and you're drinking coffee and you say, well, what's your name? You know, well, I'm Moses or, you know, whatever it was. But one of the Old Testament saints, and there they are, resurrected and walking around. Now, it's my personal opinion, and only that, that when Jesus ascended into heaven that those resurrected saints accompanied him. But my point is... What an unbelievable impact that would have had not only on the apostles and on the believers, but on other people who would deny the resurrection of Jesus. It was like, you know, you don't believe this? Well, I'm just going to give you a few hundred more or a thousand more, whatever it was, of those who had been raised, obviously as a direct result of our Lord's resurrection. 27 down to verse 62. Verse 62. The next day, which is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees assembled before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while that deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days I will rise again. So give orders to secure the tomb until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal his body and say to the people he has been raised from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. And you remember Pilate says, go. Go. Take as many soldiers as you need. Make it as secure as you can. All of this is like pouring water on the altar, as it were, to, to, to make the chance of, of our Lord's coming out of that tomb nil. And it was in the in the face of those odds that the resurrection of our Lord comes. So what I'm saying is all through the gospel of, of Matthew, the resurrection is played out as a key and central truth. In fact, it is the truth on which all of the gospel hangs as has been said in the Lord's Supper meeting this morning. Everything hangs on that. If Jesus did not rise again, we are fools. We are deceived. We are wasting our time. But in Matthew, it leads to that great climactic moment, chapter 28, where the resurrection itself is described. One more thing came to my mind. If if the enemies did not believe Jesus had actually raised from the dead, Why did they have to pay people to say why the body was missing? They really believed it was gone. Nobody said, we've got to get a big search committee. We've got to go out and look for the body because the people who were guarding it saw what happened. They knew the body was gone. They knew Jesus was raised from the dead. The issue was, how do we cover this thing up? How do we put a spin on it? They had to pay people to say what wasn't true because everybody knew what was who was directly involved. All right. Now, just a couple more things about the resurrection in relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ. In, uh, in, in uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, uh, we are told that he was appointed the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit by the resurrection of the dead. All I'm saying is the epistles confirm what the gospels teach. The resurrection validated who Jesus was and who he was elevated in the position to be. And then in Luke chapter 22, what's interesting to me, in several instances, Luke 22, in John chapter 2, and several other instances, you find the reference that not only was the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the fulfillment of his words... But the resurrection of our Lord Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures which foretold His death, burial, and resurrection. And in John chapter 2, that early statement where it says, uh, it's verse 22 if you want to look it up, but in John chapter 2, remember Jesus has cleansed the temple and they're saying, what What sign, what authority do you have to do these things? He says, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. And then John goes on to say, the disciples didn't understand at that moment, but later they came and believed the scriptures and Jesus' words. So they understood that it was the Scriptures and Jesus' words that had foretold these events. You see the same in Luke 22. Look with me at verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the Scriptures. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses... And the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it stands written that the Christ would suffer and would rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Point is, it wasn't just Jesus' prediction. Jesus' prediction was simply a repetition of what the Old Testament law had already taught, death, burial, resurrection of the Messiah. One last text. I really focused in the Gospels, but I couldn't leave this text behind in Hebrews chapter 7. Because in John chapter 5, our Lord Jesus is saying, I am going to give men eternal life. Unless Jesus' life is eternal, then he can't give life that is eternal. But now we see an eternal priesthood. The resurrection of Jesus not only gives him eternal life and therefore he can bestow it on others, it gives, I shouldn't say give because God has eternal life, but, but, but it, it assures his uh, eternity by raising him from the dead. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, we see it's an eternal priesthood. Look at uh, verse 15. And this is even clearer if another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Remember, Melchizedek was a guy who just came out of nowhere. And, and, and the writer makes a point of that and says, we don't know his beginnings, we don't know his end, and it's as though he were eternal. Whether he is indeed, Melchizedek is the son of God in that text is a matter of discussion. But he's saying, there is one that has come in the likeness of Melchizedek, And in verse 16, "...who has become a priest not by legal regulation about physical descent," like Aaron's sons and descendants, "...but by the power of an indestructible life." Now drop down to verse 23. "...and the others who became priests were numerous because death prevented them from continuing in office." In other words, all through the priesthood, all through Israel's leadership, leaders died, kings died, and you got another one, you got a new one. When we had cats, uh, lots of cats for our kids, uh, we went through a series of disasters where they just died right and left. And and after the death of about the third or fourth cat from one of our daughters, I got her a new one. And she says, now, when this one dies, do I get another one? Well, that's sort of like what you would say of the priest. When this one dies, do we get another one? Because they're going to die. And and, uh, the argument here is the Lord Jesus, because he lives forever, does not die. Verse 24, But he holds his priesthood permanently since he lives forever. So he is able to completely save those who come to God through him because he is always living to intercede for them. So the implications for our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about the implications for us. What does the resurrection mean to us. What does it mean to men? The first thing I think we ought to say is it says something to all men. I think sometimes we are inclined, and, and this is where I have a little difficulty when you're trying to to draw off lines as to where what is the value of the atonement and the work of Christ. The work of Christ has a focus for believers. Let's but set that aside for a moment. The work of Christ goes beyond just saving believers because it is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that assures the general resurrection of all men saved or lost. And and so the resurrection of our Lord Jesus ought to be either a great comfort to a believer or it ought to be a really great sense of being ill at ease for an unbeliever because... He lives, and Jesus makes it very clear in John chapter 5. God has assigned to him the role as judge. And he says, The day is going to come when the graves are going to be opened, and all men are going to come forth those who did good uh, unto the resurrection of life, those who did evil unto the resurrection of judgment. And he's saying, all men will be raised and must stand in judgment before our Lord Jesus Christ for which the outcome will be eternal damnation or eternal life. It is one or the other. So the resurrection of our Lord has universal implications because all men and women and children will be raised from the grave and will give an account uh, regarding their relationship with the Lord Jesus. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 bears on that as well. Now when you come to the next chapter in John, John chapter 6, Jesus talks about eternal life and about the the fact that he will raise them up on the last day. So resurrection is linked with eternal life. John 6:39. Now this is the will of the one who sent me that I should not lose one person of everyone he has given me, but raise them all up at the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. Remember we talked about Romans chapter four. Paul talks about the faith of Abraham. It was a resurrection faith. He believed that God was able to raise his son Isaac from the dead if he were to fulfill what seemed to be the command to take his life, to offer him up as a sacrifice. He had resurrection faith. But that is also true universally. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 13 and following says, "...all these men died without receiving the promises." because they were looking for that which would come, a heavenly city. In other words, the resurrection is necessary for every saint to enter into the blessings and the full participation in salvation. The eternal uh, life that our Lord has offered is the result of his sacrificial death and his resurrection. So you see other texts like Romans chapter 8 and so on, speaking of the victory and assurance of the Christian because of the resurrection of Christ. I apologize. I should have put this in your notes, and let's just make it a new point C. But that is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ assures the believer of the power that is necessary to live the Christian life. You see that especially dramatically played out in Romans chapter 6 through 8. But remember the question that that is raised at the outset is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul's argument is, when you were baptized, it symbolically represented your death in Christ, which was a death to sin and its power and its penalty and its grip. But you also have the resurrection of our Lord. And he says, you were also raised up with him to new life. So if, if there was only the resurrection... Uh, only the, the, the crucifixion of our Lord without the resurrection. There would all be all kinds of implications, but one of those is that we do not have the renewed life of our Lord Jesus that we have entered into by being joined to him by faith and the baptism of the Spirit. So it is the power of Christ in his resurrection that gives us the ability those of us who, who would say otherwise, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm a believer, but I'm powerless. Romans chapter 8 says, The Spirit who raised the dead body of Jesus from the, from the grave is the Spirit who now indwells the believer and he gives power to our dead bodies to live the Christian life. The resurrection of Christ is critical to us every moment of every day because we would be powerless without it to live the kind of life that we must as believers. So now a new point, at D., The resurrection means that our lives on earth must be lived in the light of eternity. The resurrection means that this is not all there is. We don't have to grab all the gusto we can get, so to speak, in this life because this is only the tip of an eternal iceberg. So what does that say to us? What are the implications of the resurrection for the believer Uh, And and for the unbeliever, what are the implications in terms of our daily life? Uh, First of all, think in terms of rewards. Look at Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. Luke 14, 12 through 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you host a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors so you can be invited by them in return and get repaid. In other words, don't invest your hospitality in a way that gets paid back now. But he says, when you uh, host an elaborate meal, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, the people who can't pay you back. Then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I wrote myself a note along that scripture. Prosperity preachers beware. What is this saying? What it is not saying is that if we have enough faith, God will make us rich and famous and, and comfortable and cozy and free from sickness and whatever. What it's saying is that could happen. We know from Hebrews 11. Some people received their children back and all those wonderful things. Other people were sawn in two. What it says is that those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who believe in His resurrection, we know that this life is not the end. We know that our rewards don't come now. They come then. Therefore, we can... Don't let the government ever hear this. We can engage in deficit spending, spiritually speaking. We can keep running in the red in the sense of not getting back because what we know is we are laying up treasures in heaven. We know that our reward comes then. Now, that works in terms of the positive things. It also works in reverse in terms of the negative. We know... That the resurrection is going to bring about full justice, not only in terms of those who have done what is right, but not been rewarded in this life, but also in terms of those who have done wrong. Look at this text in, in Luke chapter 16, verse 25. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. But I want you to see the justice picture here. Remember the story was told how Lazarus was a man who had nothing and he was the dogs were looking as sores and he was dependent on people and he basically ate out of the garbage cans or whatever came his way, the scraps from the table. And here's the rich man who's living in all of his comfort and ease. And here's what our Lord says to the rich man. Or Abraham says in verse 25, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus likewise bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. What that's saying is the resurrection brings us to the point in time where all of the injustices of life are made right in terms of those who do well they are now rewarded. In terms of those who have been wicked, they now receive the recompense for their sins. It's no wonder then that we can read in Romans chapter 12, don't pay back vengeance, leave vengeance to the Lord. The bottom line is there is going to come a time when all the unsettled accounts are going to get reconciled. And so the Adolf Hitlers or or whatever it is of this world who seem to have gotten through unscathed, they have only come to the point where at the resurrection they will give account and they will pay. So we are comforted in knowing that we will receive our rewards. We are comforted in knowing that the wicked will receive what is due to them. And therefore we don't have to agonize about all of that. One last point on that slide and that is marriage will not exist. Now, I... I I don't know why so many songs about heaven are about our loved ones and not about Jesus. Do you notice that? When you read in Revelation, it's all about being at Jesus' feet. (laughs) And and yes, we have loved ones that that have gone on and and we're going to see them and I don't know what all that's going to be like. But the real attraction of heaven is being in God's presence and enjoying Him forever. So... Those of us, when all of us who are married, when we lose a mate, we're going to say to comfort ourselves, we will see our mate there, we will, but don't expect to take up where you left off, okay? Don't expect it. Jesus makes it clear in the issue, you know, whose wife will this woman be in the resurrection because she, you know, she had all these different husbands that, you know, because they they were dying off. Jesus says, you don't understand. It's not like that in heaven. Now, here's the significance of that. If family is too important to us, remember Jesus, the one who said, you must hate your mother and your father and all this stuff. If family is too important to us, then it may be true that even our mate has a role that is not that is exaggerated in a way that takes that which belongs only to God. And so we need to realize Marriage is a wonderful, earthly institution. Uh, Don't bank on it being a heavenly one. And that ought to change your values, folks. What lasts forever is what's most important. Now, I know that's not very romantic, and I don't don't mean to come off sounding like it's sour grapes. We're all grateful for marriage here in this life. But recognize the limits that the resurrection places on that death and the resurrection. Something will be better. It, we won't complain, folks. We won't be left out. It'll be better. So let's talk about some concluding things. The resurrection is, the, is, is absolutely, vitally a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not just a nice, cozy thought And so when we come to Romans 10, 9, and 10, we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, but we must believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is a vital part of the gospel message, and we dare not leave it out because the gospel is really contingent upon what happens not only at the death of our Lord but at his resurrection. It is a crucial part of the gospel. And I would simply say if there is someone in my hearing who has never yet trusted in Jesus Christ, then you need to know a few things. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He came and lived a perfect, sinless life in full obedience to his Father, in obedience to the law. And he took upon himself your sins and mine and paid the penalty for the sinner so that by believing in him, we would have eternal life. And I'm not parsing that in all of its fine points. I'm just saying that's the, the broad picture. He died, and he rose again. And the resurrection of Jesus is a vital part. And the new life which God gave to him is a picture of the newness of life that God will give to every believer. All things will pass away. All things will become new. If you've not trusted in Him, what better time is there than on Resurrection Sunday like those in in the book of Acts who had been so prepared for what was uh, taking place uh, in, the, in the coming of the Spirit to recognize Jesus Christ is Lord and He has risen from the dead. There is no truth greater and more joyous than that truth for the believer and there is no truth more terrifying For those who have not trusted in him. It enables us, the resurrection of our Lord enables us to live life to the full. It's amazing how many people think that in order to live life fully, they must live it apart from God. But that's, that is the absolute deception of Satan. It was the deception Satan peddled to Eve, and it's the deception he's been peddling men ever since, that real happiness, real fullness of life comes independently of God. The truth is exactly the opposite. For example, and it was mentioned this morning in the worship time, we are able to live without the fear of, of death. Uh, look, for example, at Hebrews chapter 2. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in their humanity so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. You know, the, the, the funeral business is a necessary one and they do many wonderful things, but why do they try to make those people look like they're not dead? It's because people are afraid of death. They're, they're, they're in bondage and they're always living their life in some cautious sort of way, in certain ways, because they don't want to think about the death which awaits them. That's, that's a scary thought. We can be free from that. I was thinking about our friend in the Middle East <clears throat> that you and I all know. And I was thinking about the things that were described recently for us, and the analogy came to my mind, here's somebody who's walking the tightrope without a net. Isn't that really true? <laughs> walking the tightrope without a net. There, you know, no hospital that you could go to, no backup system. Uh, you basically are casting yourself solely upon him. But when you think that death is not an enemy but in effect is your friend, what have you got to lose? So that you can live your life free from the fear of death and and you live boldly, you live courageously, you live aggressively because death is no enemy to to the believer. I think about what follows death, and you look at Paul in Philippians chapter one, remember, and he's talking about whether or not he's going to die as a result of his imprisonment, and he basically says, you know, really, I just don't know what to decide because, on the one hand, I really want to die and go and be with him, and on the other hand, I I, I want to serve you, and and so it's the lesser of the two, but i that's what probably God has for me is to stay with you, but isn't it wonderful to be absolutely free and to say? if the worst thing happened, quote-unquote, death, it's better. The worst thing that could possibly happen to the believer is better than what we have now. Well, that changes the way in which we approach life and death. And I'd like to suggest to you that death and resurrection is actually the way of life. It is the way in which the Christian ought to live their life day by day. Think about these texts. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, death and discipleship. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses thirty one and thirty two. Every day I am in danger of death. This is as sure as my boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. If from a human point of view I have fought wild beasts at Ephesus, what did it benefit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You got two options. You know, once you believe in the resurrection of those who are righteous to their eternal reward and the presence of our Lord forever, then death becomes a wonderful thing and death becomes a way of life because it is just as in our Lord. His death is the way that led to His resurrection and resurrection life. So we must take up our cross daily and die to self. And all of those things which look like life, we must forsake and embrace Him. And embracing death as a way of life, then we have no fear. That's why Paul could could deal with the great dangers that he did at Ephesus because God was going to raise him from the dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9, indeed we felt as if the sentence of death has been passed against us so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11. For we who are alive are constantly being handed over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our mortal body. It's living the life of the cross, living the life of dying to self, of worldly ambition that leads to life, true life, And that is the Christian's way of life. It ought to be. So the resurrection for the unbeliever is a source of fear and dread. It is the opportunity to come to faith in the Lord Jesus for eternal salvation. And the resurrection of our Lord is the entrance into a whole new kind of life where we don't fear death. And in fact, we live a life of dying because that is the life through which the resurrection power of Jesus is made evident. Father, thank you for the resurrection of our Lord. Thank you for his sacrificial death when he bore our sins upon the tree. Thank you for the power that comes as a result of your spirit working in our dead bodies as it worked in the dead body of the Lord Jesus. And so we pray on this Resurrection Sunday that we would celebrate not only the death but the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and that we would proclaim the message of that hope to those who have no hope. There's someone here who's not trusted yet in the Lord Jesus. We ask that you would not uh, uh, let them have false comfort but that you would uh, bring to mind the reality of death and that which awaits an unbeliever. And may they find their rest, may they find their peace and joy and consolation and hope in the Lord Jesus who died and rose again. In his name we pray, amen.